When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Why am I with Seabus Super? Because I'm a builder and they take care of me. Well, I had an accident on the work site and they helped me out, no worries. Yeah, they helped me out real fast. Mate, they just get me. Because they are for all of us. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, visit cbussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word, story time. <laughs> Settle back wherever it is that you are, kick back in your chair, put your slippers on, take them off, uh, as is your want. Time for some tales, long, tall and distant and near, from the annals of cricket history. Uh, and time to bring Adam Collins into the call as well. I, I'm in winter in Melbourne. It's topsy-turvy day on the final word. It's early in the morning on the Jeff Lemon end, and it's late into the evening, nearing midnight oil territory at the North London end uh, with with a with a friend as well over there, Adam. You've been, you've been keeping yourself a bit of company while I have. I've been setting up and getting ready. I have got company. I've got uh, final word regular Isabel Westbury sitting across the desk from me here. She isn't on the show today. She's busy helping well, not helping. She's busy putting together the final touches on our preparation for the Middlesex game that we're commentating tomorrow and setting off for first thing. But yes, Jeff, the fact that we put in our diaries uh, that we would do this at 7am Melbourne time, I thought was quite quite unusual and ambitious for you. I mean, we, we've seen 7am together, but never having slept first, put it that way. Uh, and you have slept before waking up very early to do this today, which I think says a bit about your own self-growth personal journey that you would be willing to subject yourself to seven o'clock in the morning this way rather than the all-night version that you've been accustomed to over the last say 20 to 25 years <laughs> yeah normally i find the best way to see 7am is to sneak up on it from behind um you know well prepared <laughs> and i'm not i'm not used to confronting it from this angle um i'm not going to say that i like it but i am going to say that it was necessary to get this show out to people in something approaching a, a timely manner, and and in in these in these unprecedented times, Adam, it's all about everybody doing their bit, doing what they can. What can they offer? And what I can offer 
is obscure 1880s cricketing stats and that is the best way that I can contribute to to the world's um, passage through through turbulent uh, seas <laughs> of, of the year 2020. Quite a philosophical start to story time today. Uh, mm. I'm liking it. And, and the reason is, of course, that we couldn't do this earlier is in part because this was a TV studio, studio earlier today when I was doing the, the end of play stuff on Sky as well. So it's been a busy afternoon. So, Jeff, you've done the team thing and woken up early and thank you for it. If anyone is listening to story time for the first time, of course, we're only two or three weeks into this new enterprise. It isn't just the encore editions we were doing on the weekend through lockdown and isolation and so forth. And well, I suppose we're back in lockdown in Melbourne, but we started this back in April where we were rebooting old interviews and that, that is still part of it. You are going to hear an interview with Natalie Germanos from last year at Lords at the end of this, but we thought that given we've had such a Wonderful take-up on our Patreon page. So much fun with Nerd Pledge. Now that Cricket's back, we'll we'll deal with that on the weekly show and we'll deal with Nerd Pledge on Storytime where we can play our shots, where we can sort of really lean into the numbers and, and indulge ourselves and hopefully um, it, it tick all the sort of Cricket nerdy obsessive boxes that are probably part of your life too if you've become a subscriber to the final word let's be honest and before we get into the numbers though there was, there was one fairly extraordinary thing that we need to look at so sometimes <laughs> we have an idea on the show we we talk about things on the show and then those 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 seeds float off into the ether and they germinate elsewhere in in the minds of our listeners and they grow into beautiful plants of their own exotic variations on on what we thought we knew and Something a bit like that happened during the week. This was scarcely believable when you sent me the receipts for this um, yesterday while we were preparing for the show. It starts with a, a recently joined up listener, Will Day, who you suspect, you've, you've had it suggested to you from another listener, Philip Lewis, that this might be a, a Hawthorne football club player, Will Day, although I'm not sure if the age profile entirely matches up with the interests of this Will Day, <laughs> but uh, I'll leave resident Hawthorne expert Adam Collins to, to walk us through what the connections might be. Well, yeah, well, well simply put, uh, Philip put on my radar that, well, no, he didn't put on my radar, I know that Will Day's playing for Hawthorne, made his debut a few weeks ago, and his dad, of course, played in the 90, 1971 Premiership, Robert Day, one of many Hawthorne and St Kilda players to be concussed on that brutal day at, uh, at the G. But in my own mind, I'd sort of separated out the, the young Will Day from, from patron Will Day. And it was clarified when he sent his message because the, the, the level of detail here, I mean, I, I just can't imagine young 18-year-old South Australian Will Day has as much of an interest in Ravi Bapara as our patron does. And, I, I'll, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll explain. I'll explain. I, I, best, I best explain. He might be a Renaissance man. I mean, Will Day might... You know, Ravi is the Renaissance cricketer. He's, That's true. He's I, I, I don't want to sort of... Yeah, I don't want to sort of patronise a footballer who's 18 and so they can't have broader interests. It's just that not many of them do, I suppose, in this day and age. Anyway, Will Day, our Will Day, the final words Will Day, let me put it that way, has mm. written a note to confirm that last week when we concluded that his $2.90 was Ravi Papara's test bowling average, he was elated that we got that, which was lovely. He said he found it when flicking through an old wisdom, which I thought was great as well, given our interest in the good book. He goes on to say that, as with all Ravi fans, I'm still clinging on to the hope that that number, that bowling average, can still come down should Archer, Wood and Stone all go down injured and some medium pace cutters are required at the Gabba. Anyway, he says, continuing his missive to us. To refer to a previous episode, it's not quite full biodome watch with Paulie Shaw, but for what it's worth, some thanks 
from Peter Graves. And I'm reading this like, what the fuck's going on here? But then I thought about it a little bit. Of course, our Biodome Polish Shore adventure, when we were spending a lot of time thinking about whether we could get him on the final word, albeit um, as something that we never really progressed. When we were looking into it, we did it via the medium of Cameo. Now, if you've not been to Cameo yet, it's quite the website. It's where you send... Not too dissimilar to Nerd Pledge, I suppose, in a way. You throw a sum of money the way of a celebrity, and if it meets the required amount they're set on their profile, they'll send you a, a shout-out. So you might have seen when... Hmm. Uh, who was it that did... Um, was it... Roger Federer and, uh, and Alan Jones. Roger Federer and Alan Jones, for example. And there was... There was oh, that was, it was Lucy from Seventh Heaven who sent a, a shout-out to Ivan Malat for being um, really, uh, a, a really good guy and so forth and having helped out all those backpackers and what a great bloke he was. And uh, Anyway... I found Cameo a fascinating place and the cricket subsection uh, really blew my mind and uh, where a number of perhaps lesser lights were putting rather high numbers on their head to just send a mobile phone video back to them. But the pick of the litter was Peter Graves, the former Sussex player from the 60s and 70s, I think it was, and he um, his... Uh, his uh, sort of profile vid was fairly um, uh, fairly basic and it was pretty clear that he had someone filming him and it was all a bit, bit shambolic. But that's the man who Will Day's gone to to get a little message for us and it goes a little something like this. Congratulations, Adam and Jeff. This is Peter Graves from Sussex County Cricket Club here. This message is from Will Day. On deducing that your $2.90 nerd pledge did indeed relate to Ravi Bapara's test bowl an average of 290 on this week's episode of the final word sterling work as always exclamation mark as it happens I'll add some into this as well Ravi Bapara's playing for Sussex in next month's T1020 competition I hope he doesn't have to bowl have a good one what a lovely thought from Peter Graves. Thank you, Peter. Uh, thank you for being part of the show, uh, unwittingly as it, it may have been. And um, I, I really, I really warmed to Peter Graves during that video. He was, yes. he was definitely a good sport. Definitely up for it. So, so this is what can happen when you know the creative community of, of the final word get going. I, I'd like to also have an honourable mention for Tim Gilkinson, who has um, off his own bat designed a cover for my upcoming book as well i'm i can't promise that it will be the cover that gets used <laughs> but it's a it's a work of art i may even have to pop the image up on the patron page or something to to give you a look at the fine fine work that he's done during a uh, while skiving off work i think um with with a bit of <laughs> illustrator or ms paint or whatever it might be can i just say that that move from will day to get Peter Graves to send us a message is one of the best things that's happened in uh, in terms of our response yeah. to that. We were like two schoolboys when we saw that come into the inbox this morning. And of course, he naturally becomes the by Super Performer of the Week, Jeff. I mean, that, that goes without saying. Yeah, I d- don't think there's any argument about that because it's, it's all about rabbit holes, isn't it? It's like, how, how much further can you take the in-joke? So <laughs> if you can actually link actual nerd pledge to actual Peter Graves, which I, li- I liked your comparison of saying that, that cameo was was like no pledge it's like if you're a lot more famous and a lot more expensive yes <laughs> that's that's the way in which it is but you know like like cameo cbus make sure that all profits go to members not to shareholders <laughs> i can't promise that for cameo i've got no idea what their financial arrangements are um, if you if you're looking to jazz up your superannuation you go to cbus super 
Adam.com.au, find a PDS. Remember that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. Adam, let us get into the new numbers for the week. It is time for Nerd Pledge, the game, the game we play with people on our Patreon page. Now, what they do, for reasons best known unto them, uh, they can post the comments up on Patreon to say why if they want. They support the show, and they do so via the medium of quiz. They send to us a number of dollars and cents, and we have to work out what cricket number that relates to. It's an inversion of the the traditional quiz format in which a host poses questions to the audience. Here, the audience pose questions to the host. And the first number today is i was very glad to see this come up in the list a friend of the show from adelaide who who helped when we were setting up our live show over there late last year gus crouch hello gus who has uh very generously joined the final word team family group corporation whatever you want to call it three dollars 19 is the pledge from gus 319 what might 319 mean in a cricketing sense, Adam Collins? To borrow from an old boss of mine, the final word is not a corporation, it's a community. Um, the, the, um, the, um, first of all, Gus put you up, didn't he? You stayed on in Gus's spare room yes. or his couch or something like that from memory? I, I did. One of his housemates wasn't there and, uh, and I, I was in like the proverbial cuckoo into the empty nest. Uh, well, uh, he was curious as to what, where we would land on this. He sent me a message a couple of months ago when signing up and he, he didn't know which way we would take it. So there was no clue as such. I mean, it was around the time that Rakeem the Dream Cornwall made his test debut in Cap 319 mm-hmm. for the West Indies. But I suspect it's more likely to be one of the test triple tons, well, one of the test 319s, I should say. So one of those is a very famous triple century, the quickest of them all, over into Seawag in 2008 against South Africa, making 319 in just 304 balls if you don't mind, against Stain, Ntini and Morkel too. Pretty handy pace trio. Kumar Sangakara also made 319 six years later. And interestingly, he batted for 21 minutes longer than Sawag, but faced 172 more deliveries than the great Verinda. So anyway, there's two test three one nines, and I, I suspect that that is probably mm-hmm. where Gus's head's at, but I, I, I pass the baton on to you, Jeff. Well, Kumar's triple was also the only time a player made a triple and a century in the same match because he made a ton in the second dig as well. He's not the only one to have done that, but whether he's maybe he made the highest aggregate. Do you know what he made in the second innings? Because Gooch makes three three oh, no, three. Gooch, made, Gooch did it as well, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. I, I, it might have been the highest aggregate across two. I think Gooch still holds the aggregate record, but yeah, well, maybe Sangakara was the second. Anyway, right. it was unusual. It was nice. It was different. It was unusual. Well, I just have uh, a little. Bonus, maybe more for you than than for Gus, Adam. Although or maybe it's a South Australian thing. Maybe all the South Australians, Will Day, Gus Crouch, you're a big Adelaide fan. Maybe they're all really into Ravi Bapara. I mean, pretty much everyone's English in South Australia, so maybe they just like <laughs> Ravi over there because because thirty one point nine is the Test batting average of Ravi Bapara. Oh, that's just <laughs> fucking beautiful! What a lovely way to start the show. Peter Graves, Ravi Bapara, Will Day, Gus Crouch, dream dinner party, I call that. Fusion. 
you just, just mash the fingers together. Oh. That's, that's like flash dance with some of MC Hammer's I'm, shit. I'm, I'm so excited by that. I've spoken so loud that I've probably woken up Winnie upstairs, but it was worth it. Oh, I don't know whether Rachel feel it was, that it's way. It's worth it for her to be inculcated into the Ravi family. So, <laughs> so Gus, that, that, that's where I'm going. That's where Adam's going. I'll let us know in the DMs. Thank you for the number. Next up, Daniel March. Comes right after Daniel February. $8.71. $8.71. This is, a, this, this is I, th- I think, for people of our generation, yes. Adam, who've, who watched a fair bit of cricket in the 1990s, $8.71. It talks to you, doesn't it? Yeah, cricket watchers of a certain age know what 8 for 71 means. Of course, it's Shane Warne's best bowling in Test cricket when he ran through England in the first Test match of the 94-95 Ashes series. I'll never forget the delivery. He, well, I don't think Alex Stewart will either. The, the flippery bowl to him, which kind of uh, just reminded the English, I think, that, that 1993 wasn't just some bad dream. It was very much the reality for them for a second of a second Ashes series. He ended up playing in so many successful campaigns. But yes, 8 for 71 at Brisbane really was like peak warning, wasn't it? And yeah, I mean, there's, the flipper gets replayed all the time, especially the way that he sets up Stewart with a couple of short balls to let him cut away. You know, he cuts one to the boundary, thinks he's got the hang of the short ball and then gets the flipper that goes straight through him before he's even been able to work out what's going on. So there's that. And then there's also the fact that Shane Warne nearly takes a hat-trick in that game too. He's got Phil Tufnell for his hat-trick ball and he bowls oh, yeah. a googly that turns back and misses the off stump by about half an inch. And so, you know, that that famous hat-trick with Devin Malcolm caught at short leg, well, there could have been a hat-trick in, in the game. You, you know, uh, I've, 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 as well. I, I still to this day am pissed off at Craig McDermott for the hat-trick that he eventually took in, in that series at Melbourne. So... Warren's wickets were seven, eight, and nine, and it was the end of the over. It was the final three balls of his over. So down the other end, Phil Tufnell's facing Craig McDermott, and I think he gets through about three or four balls before edging him to Ian Healy, and it was test match over. But had Tufnell successfully negotiated that over, it would have been worn on a double hat trick. And given the way he was bowling that morning, I mean, you wouldn't doubt it, would you? So, but yes, Tufnell um, was uh, the man who was down the other end watching all those wickets fall uh, at Melbourne. And as you say, Jeff was very nearly uh, part of a hat trick in Brisbane as well. Well, is that just things you're mad at Paul Rifle for? You've just got a, sh- a list on the back of your bathroom door that you. Oh, no, no, no. Not, no, no, no not, not Paul Rifle. Craig McDermott's got my eye for this. Oh, one. Craig McDermott. No, no, no. I I couldn't it's be angry. Elegant. I couldn't be angry with Paul Rifle even if I tried. Even if he didn't reply to multiple emails I sent him last year to appear on the greatest season it was about the '99 Cricket World Cup. I still can't be angry with him. It's not like I'm holding a grudge for those who've um, not been involved in the projects I've done before, like Tim Watson. Why wouldn't you want to be on the um, the '93 podcast celebrating your amazing comeback and the flag that Essendon won? Why wouldn't you get back in touch with us? Not that I'm holding a grudge or anything like that. No, no. Of course, you're you're, you're above that. You you are better than that kind of pettiness. Naturally. So Daniel March, 8 for 71, has got to be Shane Warne at the Gabba. He took 11 for the match in the end, and, and we're pretty confident about that number. Here is a number I have been waiting for for quite some time, Adam. Now, <laughs> Basab Majumda joined up a few months ago and, and immediately sent through these clues, and they were compelling clues, and they were difficult clues, and, and they, were, they were compelling enough that I got onto it at the time. I was like, mm. you know what, I need to try to work out what this is. And it took... It took some work, like it took several weeks of there was a little bit of back and forth and then and then edging towards things before I finally worked out what was going on. And, and I've been waiting and I know Basab's been waiting as well, so thank you for your patience. 
Let's explain this to the readership. The number that Bass Hub sent through was four dollars and six cents. Four oh six. This was said to be. It was probably related to India in some way, but there was another number as well. Bass Hub said here. There's four oh six, but it has a link to the number seventy eight. And if you can work out what that is, you can identify uh, the player that I most loved at a certain period in time. Four oh six. If we're looking at a, a certain era in Indian cricket, bear with me here. There, there's a there's a back to back years in nineteen seventy five and nineteen seventy six, in which India play the West Indies a lot, and there are some great contests in there. And in two of these contests, the Indian team make an inning score of four hundred and six. They make it in the first innings against the Windies in Mumbai, and then they're set four hundred and four to win in the run chase. And they they lose. They're they're bowled out short after having made. So they've lost after having made four oh six in the first innings. The next year they visit the Caribbean, and they're set four hundred and three to win in the last innings. This time around at the Port of Spain, and they chase it. They chase it, and they score a boundary off the last ball, and they make four oh six, which breaks which breaks That's the world record from Leeds from nineteen forty eight. For successful run chases. It becomes the highest winning run chase until, the, um, well, there, there are a couple that break it later with South Africa and, and the West Indies. But they've made 406 to lose at the start of one test match and the next year they've made 406 to win in the run chase at the end of a test match, both against those mid-70s West Indies sides. So I've worked that out. I've got that. But how does that link to 78? Because nobody in any of those matches makes a score of 78. There's no no bowling figures of whatever for 78. There are no 78s involved, as far as I can tell. Drilling into these scorecards a bit, there's a player, not a, not a super famous player outside India, but a, a, a dashing middle-order batsman named Brijesh Patel. Now, Brijesh Patel was described as the monarch of the Ranji, he was the Ranji Trophy record runs holder for a long time and, and record hundreds. He made 2,600s in the Ranji and over 7,000 runs at a time when they probably didn't have 38 teams and play quite as much as, as they do now. So the monarch of the Ranji, he was, he was brisk, he liked to get on with it um, and, and didn't play as much for India as he might have. Bridgesh Patel, in, in that doomed run chase the first time around when they were chasing 404 and lost, Bridgesh Patel was the, the one left high and dry, 73 not out in the chase, who, who may have carried them to glory. Who knows? 73 not out, but the number we're looking for is 78. 73 not out in the second innings. But in the first innings, he was dismissed for five. Now, if you add 73 and five together, you get 78. Hmm. Have a look at the test match the following year. The following year when the West Indies chase 406 and win, who should be not out in the run chase but Bridgesh Patel? 49 not out to ice the world record run chase. What did he make in the first innings? Dismissed for 29. 29 and 49 is 78. 406 to 78 across two years, 1975 to 1976. The answer, Basab Majumdar, is Bridgesh Patel. That is absolutely wonderful. Well, first of all, thank you for sending through such elaborate clues, which lets Jeff 
well, it, it, it lets Jeff do what he does best, which is spend hours and hours digging through old scorecards and going back through old Excel spreadsheets that he keeps and, and so on. Like, you've allowed Jeff to be his best self there. And if that's like, I mean, you've got far more patience for those sort of dives than I do. I really enjoy going through cards and working out what you know so i guess the the storylines are different players but when it comes to old-fashioned just number crunching that's your bag and you've been allowed to do that so basab thank you uh, on on behalf of both of us but that's a very generous pledge as well and i'm glad that you've gotten to the bottom of it after what i'm sure was multiple hours at, at, the, at the coalface it uh, it kept me out of trouble for a while i'll put it that way uh, our next numbers a double header jack a and Harry Howard, I, I love when the name Harry Howard comes up because the double H with Howard always makes me think of Howard Hamlin uh, from Better Call Saul. Well, when, when you when you said before seventy eight, I was thinking, is it going to be someone with the initials like G H? I kind of thought mm. that you know that, that's where I was thinking. I thought maybe it's going to be a play on that. Of course, I, not that I want to emphasize the, <laughs> the the double eight, which of course is occasionally used by some fairly ordinary human beings. But that would also be Harry Howard, alliterative as it is. Mm. There we go. Yeah, I see. I see. Well, a much better version. A much um, better version of the of the eighty eight. Yes. Yeah. Um, as as would as would Howard Hamlin. If you can decode what we've just said, then you spend too much time uh, in the same sort of pop culture wormholes that Jeff and I live in. Yeah. It, look. It, we, yeah. We can. If you can work it out, that's on you. Howard Hamlin from Hamlin Hamlin McGill is the fictional law firm in the prequel to Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul. Oh yes. Anyway, yes. <laughs> I think I think we've digressed a little bit too far here from Harry Howard and Jack. A, who who both sent through a pledge of $2.19. Thank you to both of you. Two one nine. What does that suggest to you, Adam? Uh, just some, I guess, the Taylor Slater, 219s jump out, don't they? Uh, Taylor, when they batted all day at uh, Nottingham back in 1989, then Slater when he just carved up Sri Lanka in... 1995-96 over at the Wacker. So that was Slater's high-scoring test matches, of course. But where I basically got back to was Verinda Saywag. I thought that'd be a nice through line, given that <laughs> Saywag, um, for, for a brief... We, we talked about the fastest triple 100 in test cricket. Well, the 219 he made in a one-day international in 2011 against the West Indies, well, that was the world record for the highest score in 50-over cricket for a time. Not for long, because, of course, a couple of years later, I think 2013 Rohit Sharma hit his 268. But still, there was a time when 219 was the, the benchmark in the pyjamas. So that's where I got to. It's also Bill Laurie's cap number. I should just give a, a nod to the phantom as well. There was a time when my heart was an open book. <laughs> Verenda Sawag held the one-day world record. The, the, there's a 219 that I spoke about some months ago on a Statman episode as well in which I was looking at players whose only test century was a double. And one of those was a, a white Trinidadian player who captained the West Indies briefly in the 1950s named Dennis St. Eval Atkinson, who, who was involved in what remains the world record partnership for the seventh wicket in test matches to this day. So there was a game in which the Australians made 668. The West Indies were six for 147 or 147 for six in reply. Sobus was gone, Walcott, Weeks, Worrell, all the stars. And there was Atkinson, who was an all-rounder who sometimes batted as low as 10 and there was the, the wonderfully named Cyril Claremont de Pisa, uh, whose nickname was the Leaning Tower de Pisa, who was the wicketkeeper. And they put on 347 for the seventh wicket. 
they took the score past 500, which ensured the Australians had to bat again for a decent while. And then the same pair were back together batting in the second innings to secure the draw and oh. make sure that they didn't didn't lose a game after um, conceding more than 600 in the first innings. So an extraordinary rearguard that, that went for an incredibly long time. And uh, Dennis Atkinson made 219 in that rearguard. On top of, I should note, bowling 84 overs for the match. Oh. That's... Uh that's, that's much better than me just rattling off a couple of high scores from some openers from 20 years ago. So I'm going to go with that. Dennis St. Ival Atkinson. That's a, that's a hell of a name. Look, I'd, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I, I had done the work on that one earlier. So there's no need to feel bad. I'd already stolen that one. But that's where we're going for So maybe Jack A can have Verenda Sawak and Harry Howard, the double H man, can have uh, Dennis Atkinson. Very nice indeed. So next up, we've got Dan Walsh with $5.47. I remember a 5 for 47, Jeff. I was there. I suspect you were as well. Yep. Uh, Brett Lee on debut at the MCG, smashing through India. Got Raul Dravid twice in the match, I think. Um, 5 for 47 in the first innings with pace, genuine pace, raw pace. All the adjectives you have to apply to pace. It's the law. You'll be arrested by the cricket police. Um, so, so, yeah, Brett... Brett Lee, um, first up, first vision at Boxing Day in 1999. It was a pretty exciting day, wasn't it? Because Australia had batted well, but not that well. I think they, they might have made it to stumps on day one, a little bit beyond stumps. Steve Waugh made 100, if I recall correctly. Mark Waugh was not far away from losing his spot, made a half century and got out straight after that. I, I remember that too. But they needed to bowl India out you know relatively cheaply and and would I be right in remembering Jeff that Tendulkar was at the other end and made a hundred in that first innings or was it the second innings when Tendulkar made a hundred when they were chasing a squillion either way it was a it was Brett Lee who who stole the show uh, on that second afternoon picking up five for 47 on the hallowed turf of the MCG another five for 47 that it could be uh, is uh, another champion fast bowler Catherine Brunt who picked up five for 47 on test taboo in 2005 it was a match-winning effort nine wickets all told for the Barnsley Express uh, England retained the ashes so it was effectively a, a, an ashes winning performance of course Catherine's still going now 15 years later and 15 back operations later or so it feels sometimes with her but um, as good as that performance was in isolation what I um, found particularly interesting was going back through the card and kind of realising that that's a test match that should be written about as far as the it's a crossover of a number of eras as far as some really important players who are just starting off some at the back end of their careers but you run through the two team sheets and there are so many influential names on the game who've gone on and done amazing things both on the field but certainly off the field as well so you look at Belinda Clark Lisa Kitely Karen Rolton Lisa Stalaker Alex Blackwell Catherine Fitz Patrick, um, Shelley Nitschke, you know, I mentioned Catherine Brunt already, but Isha Guha, Beth Morgan, who's um, now, you know, running the show uh, at the Sunrisers, Claire Connor, who's the boss of England cricket and about to become the president of the MCC, Charlotte Edwards. I mean, this was a very significant week in cricket history, I reckon, where all these players happened to be on the field at the same time in the same test match, which England won, uh, which meant they retained the Ashes, thanks to Catherine Brunt's 5 for 47. 5 for 47, that uh, looks like a couple of decent shouts to me, Dan Walsh. Thank you very much for your nerd pledge. The last of our new numbers today, this comes in from Ben N., 
four dollars and ten cents four ten and initially I, I dived into a whole lot of things for this because I often forget to look at people's clues because I get excited about the number and I want to know what's <laughs> what's in there so I was looking at Glenn McGrath taking four for ten and India being four 410 for one in an abandoned drawer in Lahore after four Pakistani players made tons. Imagine an innings in which Shade Afridi and Cameron Akmal made hundreds. <laughs> like, that, that's got to be the deadest pitch you have ever seen in your life. But then I remembered that there was a clue from Ben N who said, my 410 is not a score, not an innings total, not bowling figures. It was inspired by Anzac Day. And so after a, a little bit of digging around, I've discovered, Adam, the service number of Flight Lieutenant 2nd AIF Keith Ross Nugget Miller was 410608. Starts with 410. Can't be anything else. I love it. I mean, that's a, a wonderful clue. Well answered there. When I saw the Anzac Day bit, I couldn't quite get there. But where I thought was, I thought 25th of April, 254, Bradman. Bradman's 254 mm. at Lords in 1930, which has been, well, it was described as Bradman's best innings by David Frith and a number of others um, uh, when sort of reflecting on the great man's career. But Australia made about 700 in that inning. So then they won by seven wickets so there was no link back to 410 so uh, I'm glad that it comes via of course Miller and Bradman were teammates some 18 years after they weren't they in the 1948 tour and in test matches after the war before that but yes uh, I'm, I'm glad we uh, got there via such a, a an unusual uh, link uh, via that service number. Thank you Ben uh, thank you to everybody who's sent through a nerd pledge this week if you're on the list do bear with us we're we're working through them and we have not forgotten you if you think we have forgotten you drop us a message because you're on patreon and you can if you want to send us a number go to patreon.com slash the final word uh, just sign up make yourself an account set your number and send it through we will add it and come to it in due course and thank you so much to everyone who has signed up who's helping the show keep going now i know adam you've been very busy in the mailbag over the last couple of days in that message inbox sifting and, and finding many many nuggets of gold and uh, what, what have you got for us this week? Well, yeah, I think we should almost sort of go behind the curtain a bit here. So now, and this is a wonderful thing, due to the volume of messages we're getting during the week, this, putting on the weekend show, the story, it's quite a big job. And we love it because it means that we get to go through and send lots of really interesting messages to our patrons while, in this case, Jeff went away and dug through the new numbers and I had a, a good deep dive in the DMs. But it's lovely that this inbox, which it was never sort of moribund, but it was always relatively quiet. But now that story time's got a life of of its own. We talked about, you know, the mm. sort of creative juices flowing and different things evolve. Well, now this has become a big deal. Uh, so I, I certainly encourage you to drop us a line, whether it's your number being discussed or you want to add something to someone else's number. If you want to do a better investigation of a number than what Jeff and I have done, well, this is certainly the place to do it. But uh, to begin with, we've got Sarah Berman, who she confirmed that her 643 was indeed the number of minutes that Michael Atherton batted for at Johannesburg for his 185. His epic in 1995 she goes on to say the inclusion of the Powderfinger lyric was the icing on the cake thank you and she looks forward to reading the book chapter that you've posted on the Patreon page Jeff and this is a, a, a reminder of that while we're here so you've 
selected a chapter of your forthcoming book. Uh, I was going to say your forthcoming novel. That wouldn't be the right word. A novel is a work of fiction. <laughs> this is not a work of fiction. This is a work of non-fiction. Uh, okay. which is, okay. yeah, explain why you picked the chapter in question and how people can access that. I can tell that your baby is teething and that it's very late at night for you. You're like, <laughs> the, it's, a, it's a novel that is true. A novel based on, a novel describing true events. Uh, it is a non-fictional novel um, that that, that may be one way of describing it, I suppose people do. Yeah, look, there's a chapter up there called The Redemption Myth, which is about the... It, it, it's looking at the theory of the idea of, of why we ascribe to a concept that sport can cleanse people of, uh, of sins that are not related to sport. And it's probably the only chance you'll have to read it in its current form because there are some uh, excisions and revisions and moving around and so on that I'm doing in the editing process now. I quite like it as it is as a standalone essay, but there will be some shifts for continuity probably. So if you want to read it in its current form as it came out of my fevered brain while I ploughed towards deadline, uh, that's up on the patron page now for people who've joined up and, and thank you to Sarah for the message. Uh, Patrick Rogers sent a message as well, which is not unusual in itself. Patrick Rogers is probably third behind you and I in terms of time spent in various old scorecards on a weekly basis at the moment. <laughs> uh, looking at the Ravi Gap, the Ravi Bogapara, the, the gap between bowling average in first-class cricket and test cricket because that's why we were discussing Ravi with a test bowling average of 290 runs per wicket and a, a first-class average somewhere in the mid-30s. Uh, Patrick says the world record holder for the gap would be Sri Lankan left-arm spinner Roger Wijasuria who took one for 294 across four test matches with a strike rate of 586. <laughs> uh, a bit painful there. But had a first-class average of 25.77. Thus, the gap is 268.23, uh, the, the highest bowling gap in world first-class cricket. You're an absolute gem, Patrick Rogers. Uh, Cumbrian, now... We missed one here on, on on the weekly show, Jeff. This was a howler on our part. We, we couldn't quite work out um, what 199 meant as it relates to Cumbria. But surely Mel on Twitter, who's a wonderful correspondent of ours, uh, one of our very favourites who is always um, tweeting about the final word and we love her for it, brought to our attention the fact that, of course, as she said here, her mind was taken to Ben Stokes. Cockermouth, that's where it is. He took 199 balls to get his ton at Headingley last year. So Cockermouth Cricket Club, as as Michael Atherton uh, helpfully <laughs> informed us during the first test match of this weird summer, is where Ben Stokes played and grew up, which of course is in Cumbria. So that's the link back to 199. So I think we've got to the bottom of that. So thank you to Shirley Mel there. We had another message through on 199 as well, Jeff. The other 199, $1.99 was via John Leather, the great statistician hypercourse, who got in touch and said, it's the highest score of a player you have both worked with and was made in a match featuring a number of final word interviewees. And I battled with this and I thought it might have been Caroline Atkins, Shaggy, as she was known because of the bandana she wore when she used to bat underneath the helmet. I thought it might have been Lydia Greenway, but Jeff, you got the right answer. It was who? Charlotte Edwards in a List A 
50-over game in 2006 for the Diamonds versus the Sapphires, opening the batting 199 not out from 151 deliveries, uh, a pretty decent clip, and uh, they only lost a couple of wickets in that innings of 337. Uh, and then, well, the, the other side nearly chased it. They made 305 in reply, so it looks like it was probably a fairly decent track. But Charlotte Edwards, 199, not out, and just ran out of time in the 50 overs to get to a list day double century. So uh, that's what it's got to be, hypercost. The good old days of the Super Fours, an idea which I think might have its time again when talking about playing multi-day cricket but perhaps not for a while because that's well and truly off the radar but I think that if you look back at those old scorecards some pretty bloody good cricketers came through that system and uh, I suppose it was a bit of a precursor to the semi-professional era which we became accustomed to through the Kia Super League and now the uh, now the regional system which kicks off next week with the Rachel Hayho Flint Trophy Jeff. Now, we were trying to solve Elise Gaines' riddle on the show last week in which there was a rodeo reference and it was related to Bradman and the Gabba in 1931. Uh, the, the mystery wasn't that mysterious after all. It's just that the Queensland Bulls play at the Gabba, therefore it's the rodeo. Um, but I, I liked this little passage from Elise because let's let's have a moment of frank self-reflection on the show. We... we we give shit to the Gabba constantly, almost constantly, as a terrible cricket ground and and um, and just a really just a terrible place in general, a sort of black hole of, of optimism and and hope in the world. But this message from Elise forced me to look at things a little bit differently. She says, "I live in Brisbane, but grew up in Arnhem Land in the Northern Territory and did not get an opportunity to see live cricket until moving there as a teenager." I know a lot of people criticise the Gabba. But for someone who didn't grow up with any access to such live sport, I still get a thrill when I go to watch the Brisbane Heat or the Aussies just from being there and seeing players with my own eyes instead of a TV screen. I normally go to games with my cousin David, but I may eventually be able to get my husband Trent to a game. He has always maintained that cricket is boring, but he was engrossed in the Test TV series from Amazon and is reading her copy of my book. So, I mean, I've got to read that out, don't I? Yeah, I, I love that message and I sort of shared your, your thoughts when reading it. I'm like, yeah, we often give Queenslanders a hard time about not going to the Gabba in, in, in strong enough numbers, but we're fairly privileged having grown up in Melbourne on the train lines that go to the G and get us there in, I guess in your case, about half an hour and in my case, about 45 minutes when we were growing up. So it does put us at a distinct advantage attending Test Cricket compared to those that live in a far-flung state like Queensland and indeed in, in the case of Elise having grown up over in the Territory in Arnhem Land. So it gave me pause for thought about the shit we give those at the Gabba as well. We love you. Queensland, even if you won't let anyone in except for footballers. Uh, fair enough, too. I mean, you shouldn't let the footballers in, let's be honest. That's probably problem number one. Uh, but, but look, you don't let anyone else in either. A note from Michael Reichstein, who said that our guesses about his $4.40, it was not related to Headley Verity in 1934. It was related to an Ashes contest uh, many years later, given that it was a score of 44. And in that case, it must be the 44 made by Peter Siddle, who made 44 out of 88 in partnership with Stephen Smith at Edgebaston. A 44 I will remember forever. They were eight for 120-odd when Peter Siddle came out and, and on the way to another humiliating thrashing on a tour of England and uh, Siddle saved the day. An astute selection 
Who would have thought that 88 would keep getting a mention on the final word uh, story time this week? Yeah. Here we are. Um, not for the re- no, not for that reason. <laughs> Q, Q will be on to us <laughs> in that time. Uh, Richard Clark has got in touch around uh, the story of Brooke Quinn's 311. So he, he wrote in to say that, please tell me 311 is Glenn Turner's career best, which also happened to be his 100th 100. He goes on to say that Turner initially came to England to trial for Warwickshire, but their overseas roster was full, so they offered him to Worcester. In 1982, when the teams played, he made 311 not out, 100 before lunch, 200 before tea, and Worcestershire declared at 501 for one before the close of play, which is quite remarkable. So, uh, But that wasn't Brooke Quinn's 311 because Brooke's been in touch to resolve the matter. He replied that it refers to the first match-winning contribution from one of the greatest of all time, and it only took 31 balls, Jeff. Yeah, and, and so I was, I was a bit puzzled by this because 31 deliveries indicates the fastest ever one-day century by A.B. de Villiers, but that was far from his first match-winning mm. effort. It wasn't a particularly notable match or series. So then I was, I was churning back through this and, believe it or not, reviewing every innings in international cricket that spanned 31 <laughs> deliveries. No. Because these are the lengths that I will go to no. for this show. You, Jeff, doing that... Never. And here's what I think I've found. So if, if, if the 311, which, you know, strictly speaking, numerically probably should have been 310, Brooke, I don't want to scold you here on, on, on Nerd Pledge. This is, this is a welcoming environment. But, you know, that did throw me off the scent somewhat. But if it, if it relates to 31 balls, 31 deliveries faced, here's what I found for you, Adam. In April 1994, there was a one-day international debut of a certain Michael Bevan. In October 1994, it was his seventh innings, seventh time out to the middle, playing in a Wills Trophy match, the quadrangular in, in India, against South Africa. Australia were four for 143 when he came to the crease, six for 167 soon afterwards. Bevan got Australia to 208, making 36 not out from 31 balls they bowled out South Africa about 20 runs short of that total I think you could call that match winning Uh, I think you could call that early in the career of an all-time great and I think it took 31 deliveries so I can't say categorically that that's it but I think it's got a pretty good shot of being it let us know Brooke Quinn if Jeff's got to the bottom of your 311 it's not Bobby Simpson it's not Hashim Amla it's not the band 311 but it might be Michael Bevan made in heaven we will see Uh, Dane Hanstead wrote in to tell us all about his 291 now we said Viv Richards uh, we we were drawn into this and we talked at length about that famous innings back in 1976 but he said we may want to review our options it's the sum of three numbers that involve this cricketer. He's loving story time, he goes on to say. Uh, Jeff, you had a bit of fun here. Well, there's only one place you can go with that hint. Shane Robert Watson. (laughs) 75 test wickets he took, 168 ODI wickets, 48 T20 wickets. Combine those, and for Australia, across international formats, he took 291 Wickets, which we often forget about when discussing his batting uh, and the criticism thereof. One of Australia's greatest ever run chasers averaged over 50 in the second innings of One Day Internationals and took those 168 ODI wickets as well to go along with it. So uh, criminally underrated, one of only a couple of players to make centuries in all formats for Australia, along with David Warner and Glenn Maxwell. So 
give a bit of love to Watto, the big rig. Uh, that's what Dane Hanstead is all about. Yeah, we love you, Watto. Can't wait to one day get you on the show. We'll see how we go next summer, perhaps. Uh, Rob O'Neill uh, dropped us a line uh, about five dollars 57 so this is where i worked out that clary grimmett made 557 test runs and jeff you nearly slipped off your chair thank you um, but uh loved it but it wasn't about a number of runs rob o'neill told us he said he fell in love with cricket watching teams that regularly toured australia in the 1980s this event did not happen in a game involving australia but the player was a prominent member of a team that toured at least twice in that period and jeff that's all you needed to hear this had me a bit confused at first. It's about batting, but not a number of runs. So I was looking at deliveries faced, but nobody's faced 557. We've had 556, but not 557. Uh, looking at minutes batted, no one's batted for 557. 556, but not 557. <laughs> then I was looking at all of the occasions in which a team has lost their fifth wicket with the score on 57. So what what happened at five for 57 and was there anything remarkable and in test cricket not particularly but then it occurred to me that if it's two teams who toured in the early 80s it's probably Pakistan and the West Indies and that probably means that we're talking about a one-day international because they played a lot of that style of cricket and in 1991 there was another Wills Trophy match who would have thought the Wills Trophy would get two runs in the same show <laughs> Between those two sides, Pakistan had made 236. West Indies, in reply, fell to 5 for 57. Along came Jeff Dujon, one of the good Jeffs. There are good Jeffs and bad Jeffs in the world. You can draw your own categories. Uh, I think some of them are fairly obvious, but Jeff Dujon's in the good list. It came along to join Richie Richardson. So it was 5 for 57, and then they took it along to 211, put on over 150, and suddenly it looked like they were going to win this great turnaround. And then Wakar Yunus comes steaming back. He knocks over Richie Rich for 122, and then Dujon gets run out, and they go through Walsh, Ambrose in quick order, unsurprisingly. Poor old Ian Bishop, so often at the last in these things, made 16 runs but was the last man out to fall one run short. It was a one-run victory to Pakistan with Richie Richardson's 122, and I reckon that is what Rob O'Neill is talking about. 1991 Wills Trophy. If that is number Wang and you've worked that out on the back of that clue, you've done very well because a, an obscure one-day international not played in Australia between the Windies and Pakistan in 1991 Wills Trophy. I want to know, Rob, if that is why you had 557. What drew you to it? I want to know the backstory. Let us know in the DM inbox as ever. We have... A note here from George Norman writing in reply to Gregory Wellman's 735. And this is, a, if not for the brilliant Will Day email off the top, I reckon this might have been my super super performer of the week. So we said $7.35 was actually $7.35, which were Mitchell Johnson's bowling figures when he played a game of indoor cricket after retiring from international cricket. Well, George Norman went on to say that he was delighted to hear us tell that story because his son just happens to play for the bowling darts team who Johnson was playing against that night. So as he says here, they actually have on the back of their shirts rather optimistically, bowling darts and stealing hearts, which is such classic <laughs> indoor cricket form. Anyway, he says that that night Mitch, when he took that bag of wickets, was for memory bowling spin which explains why he had 
a stumping and there were a lack of injuries. Most memorably, the boy, his boy, claimed that he accidentally bowled a beamer to Mitch while he was batting. Can confirm he lived to tell the tale. Keep up the good work. <laughs> oh, I love this show sometimes. I love the messages we get. I love the people that take the effort to tell us these stories. So maybe it was seven for negative 35, but at least now we know that it's not just bowling darts. It's bowling darts and stealing hearts. <laughs> Thank you, George Norman. And we should uh, we should also emphasise that the son of George Norman, uh, the, the bowling darts team won. They lost yes. seven wickets to Mitch for no runs, but they also won the game somehow. They pumped them. So. I think they beat them 101 to 52. I thought I saw the scorecard last week. Crazy. Wow. Well, the rest, that's, yeah, that's, that, that's some, some serious TGC alpha work if you can take <laughs> seven for Neg 35 and still be on the losing team. <laughs> your, your teammates are absolute dross. <laughs> um, Alex Crampton replied to our chat last week about Tim Southey hitting a lot of sixes. And these are the things I love to hear on the show. When, when I can detract from the productivity at work of our listeners, that's what I'm all about. So Alex went off and spent several hours at work recreating a list about the highest percentage of runs scored in sixes because he couldn't find it when he tried to search it on the internet and deduced when adding a filter of um, at least 30 sixes in test cricket, Tim Southey indeed holds that record with 25.9% of his career runs scored by hitting it over the fence. Michael Holding is the surprising next entrant on 23%, uh, which Alex wrote to us about, saying you don't hear about Holdings batting and guessing that he wouldn't have got many bounces given his ability to give them back. <laughs> so there was probably a lot of length that was carted over mid-wicket. Uh, the first specialist batsman on the list is Rohit Sharma in 11th with 14.6%. But if you broaden that category, that, that cutoff from 36s to 29, then it's Trent Bolt with 26.6% <laughs> of his runs in sixes. Thank you, Alex, for the work you have done for us, for God and your country. One in here from a regular correspondent to the show, Owen Brazier. He has his database that he made, you may remember. He was frustrated when Jeff and I were talking about consecutive queries that we couldn't work it out on Stats Guru, so he made it for us. Absolute legend. Uh, and we probably should have thought about him the other day, Jeff, on the weekly show when we talked about Stuart Broad taking three or more wickets on seven consecutive occasions. Well, he put it through his uh, machine crunched the numbers and he was able to work out that it is in fact a record in England in the history of Test cricket. So in the past it's happened six times but but never seven. So Stuart Broad now holds that record and we know that thanks to Owen Brazier. And Jack Frith wrote to say, and we should have worked this one out as well, sometimes sometimes I walk away from this show with a, a lingering sense of shame about certain things. So we, were, we were trying to work out how he knew that Adam had not been at a certain match that related to his number $4.45. We should have worked this out because there's something we talk about on the show a little bit. Jack said that Adam couldn't have been at this match by a logical process of deduction. And that has to mean that Adam couldn't have been at that match because it had a hat trick in it and Adam's never seen it. Oh, <laughs> so, that's, that's very, very good, Jack. That's very so good. So what this relates to, as I've worked it out since, is the most recent hat trick taken in Test cricket by Nassim Shah against Bangladesh uh, earlier this year when he knocked over Najmul Hossein, Tajul Islam and Mahmoudullah 
in a row. That came right after Pakistan had made 445 via a couple of tonnes from Babar Azam and Shah Massoud. So that has to be the 445 that Jack Frith sent in a match at which Adam did not attend, A, because it was in Pakistan, but B, because it had a hat-trick in it. A match that I did attend a couple of weeks ago involved Ian Holland and Jack Frith's a fan of Hampshire and therefore Ian Holland. I actually interviewed Ian this week and his story is incredible. I know we touched on it a couple of weeks ago, but I told Ian that we're going to have him on the final word the next time that he plays for America. So keep your eyes open for that one, Jack. And our final bit of correspondence today, Jeff, is from Ben Woolgar and it relates to the International Eleven that we were discussing on the weekly show that appeared at the 1973 Women's World Cup. This was a detailed note from Ben. We were talking about the, the International Eleven and how they came to pass. Uh, Ben's directed us to the Red Inca podcast that Jared Kimber makes, on which he spoke to the women's cricket historian, Ralph Nicholson, and colleague of ours about this particular Eleven, uh, which apparently came about because initially the World Cup, as arranged by Rachel Hayhoe Flint, who was a, a pioneer for women's cricket, but also... Um, Aligned with political conservatism on almost every other score, they'd, they'd invited South Africa ostensibly without thinking that this might be a bit of a problem in 1973 and then eventually rescinded the South African invite but then wanted most of the South African players to play in this international team uh, so that they would kind of skirt around having the problem that they were likely to have with boycotts and so on. Jamaica and Trinidad and Tobago were playing in that World Cup and said that they would withdraw if any South Africans played in that international team, hence the huge number of New Zealanders who were shoehorned into that team at the last <laughs> minute to try to beat their own New Zealand team and stop them winning a World Cup. Um, so that's pretty much how it all worked out in 1973 and I imagine the similar sort of thing happened in 1982 when they tried it again. Uh, so thank you, Ben Wilgo. <laughs> Absolutely outstanding. And that, Jeff, after over an hour looking at my clock uh, on my recorder, is us done for another week of story time in terms of the nerd pledge component of the show. It's, it, it has been, there has been no shortage of stories in story time. I feel like we're living up to that part of, of the title, <laughs> at least. Um, if, if you'd like to get involved, as we said, patreon.com slash the final word. Uh, if you wouldn't, you'd like to just keep listening, do that because we like having you as well. Uh, this is story time. On the final word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. We're going to take a break and then we're going to hear from Natalie Germanos, the South African cricket broadcaster, and a really wonderful chat that we had with her during the Men's World Cup in 2019. Stay tuned. Jeff, before launching back into our chat with Nat Germanos, uh, we've been spending a fair bit of time talking about the Lord's Taverners on the final word in recent weeks, and I'm really proud to for us to have had that association. Uh, as we've been seeing throughout the course of the Bob Willis Trophy, there are so many players around England right now who are raising money for the important work that the Lord's Taverners do, uh, and we know through this period of lockdown and isolation uh, and more generally just the discombobulation around the community that that really does take take a toll on the people that Lord's Tavern has put so much work into helping year in, year out. And it, it's nice to be able to work with people who are actually doing good things and, and trying to help people. You know, we, on this segment of the show, we, we could have been promoting arms manufacturers, decided <laughs> not to do that. Could have been selling cigarettes, decided not to do that. Lord's Taverners are actually just trying to do good in the world, trying to manufacture programs that can uh, help, particularly help young people who are living with disability or living in disadvantaged situations. And 
people in those situations are especially affected by the COVID crisis, the, the isolation, the lockdowns that we've seen around the world. Um, and that's meant that a lot of the, the social programs that Lord's Taverners would normally run haven't been able to run. They haven't been able to get people together in the same place. Uh, they've, they've had those sort of programs cancelled and postponed which makes it all the more pressing to be able to, to make connections with people in the community who need it. So the Isolate campaign is just about trying to uh, get a surge of fundraising in to be able to, to adapt programs and, and have, have, a sort of, have a social network for particularly those kids who really need it. Yeah, raising money is particularly challenging at the moment. Ordinarily in a cricket season, Lords Taverners have a number of events which are well attended and lots of people in the cricket community come out and do the right thing, but that's just impossible in, in 2020. So we have to find different ways uh, to be innovative and creative about getting this important fundraising going. Of course, Lords Taverners are the longest standing and most successful sports charity in the UK. They've been going since 1950. That's 70 years being fantastic members of our cricketing community. Uh, we know that you mentioned disability before, Jeff. We know that uh, members of the community with disabilities uh, suffer from isolation at twice the rate of those without. And of course, we just know right now what a challenge that is. And you, you layer on top of that the work that Lord's Taverners do with dislocated communities, with knife crime, with making sure that people, young people especially in the community, are, are able to have a network which is helped along by cricket and this community that we that we work within. We sort of joked off the top saying we're not a corporation, we're a community on the final word. Well, that's certainly the ethos and the approach that's taken by the Lord's Tabs as well. And the Isolate campaign's fairly straightforward, the idea being that if you can donate £8 or $8 uh, to the work that they're doing through the community and you can in turn um, nominate eight others to do the same well that's the way you that's nickel and dime that's that's the sort of um, fundraising that really really can make a difference when a lot of people are involved rather than necessarily relying on a handful of big donors it's all about getting the message out there as as is everything else <laughs> in in the kind of world that we live in at the moment so if you'd like to get involved lordstaverners.org and uh, check out the isolate campaign and what you can do to help Hi, I'm Dave Warner, and you're listening to The Final Word. This is The Final Word podcast with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. We are at Lords. It's a lovely, cloudy London afternoon. And our guest today is someone who started covering professional cricket in, back in 2005, has got through 85 test matches, and 86 is on the horizon, and however many hundreds of one-day internationals and T20s we could not possibly count, and neither could she. Natalie Germanis, welcome to the program. Thanks very much. Great to be with you guys. We've been wanting to talk to you for a while. We sort of uh, approached it last year, and we didn't get around to it because, you know, things came up and, and all of the rest of it, but we started working with you at the Women's World Cup in 2017, and it was fascinating to find out how far back your broadcasting history went, you know, when you just casually dropped into conversation uh, commentating on the 434 slash 438 game between South Africa and Australia, which, and that was the first time I'd realised that the South Africans call it something else. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, of course, use the Australian score, but uh, that's probably not the most important score in the game. You guys always do it the other way around, though, don't you? <laughs> Instead of that, you, you, you do also one for 38. We how we're brought up. One, how, we, yeah. how, we, how we were schooled in the game. We say you do it the wrong way, but anyway. Well, we think, as Australians, 
growing up, we, we are taught that the English way is the wrong way when, of course, we're the outlier. <laughs> yeah. Which might say more about the way we're built. But anyway, that's yeah, a whole different true. conversation. Resentfully insisting the rest of the world is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Australia, get a Southern Cross tattoo. But it, it's actually a particularly good time to talk to you now rather than a year ago because there was this really interesting uh, sort of contrast or, or conflict, I suppose. In Australia over the last summer, suddenly there were women on all of the major broadcasting teams. Now, this wasn't something that had happened much before. Alison Mitchell had done a bit on the ABC, on ABC Radio, but then she was doing ABC and leading Channel 7's TV coverage. Isha Gur was leading the Foxtel coverage. Mel Jones was on SEN. All, all of the platforms had suddenly had women broadcasters, and it was being treated as though it was this new thing. Oh, oh wow, there are, there are ladies doing the men's <laughs> cricket. How, how quaint, how progressive. And then you look at South Africa and think, well, you've been doing it for... 13 years. Cass Naidu started a couple of years before you, so she's been 15 years in the game. And it's just completely regulation over there. That's just how things are. Um, so I was interested in your perspective on that that side of things, this idea that, that some new barrier has been breached when actually it's been that way for a long time. Yeah, and Donna Simmons also of the West Indies did it even before mm. Cass Naidu as well. So they had broken that ground very early on. Alison Mitchell broke her ground here in England about the same time as I did as well. Cass had started a couple of years before me and when I saw, it was always one of my sort of objectives was to do this. Um, I wanted to play but women's cricket at the time was to be quite honest, was in a mess in South Africa. It was difficult to get into and it certainly obviously wasn't anywhere near where it is now um, but I saw Cass Nidey on, a, the mag- on, on, a, on the magaz- front of a magazine I think it was and I said oh there's a woman doing what I want to be doing so it's actually it's something that's possible and I think back then initially people were looking at it and saying oh okay this is a novelty this is something a little bit different but now it's part of everyday life you have we have women on the crew and we bring new women in Mignon Dupria for example who was obviously the former women's captain we've brought in at a commentary level and it hasn't been an issue. It has, it's been seamless to bring her into to the men's coverage. You mentioned wanting to play growing up. What is your first memories of the game, whether it's as a player or the way you consumed it on the radio or the television? Very first one would have been probably back to South Africa's test match when they came back into when we came back from yep. readmission. Also watching the South Africa against the, watching South Africa against the West Indies in particular. That one single test match, which they nearly won, and then obviously Kirtley Ambrose and mm. Courtney Walsh took. South Africa apart on that final day with just brilliant bowling. That is one of my early memories. But what, that was watching it on TV. Listening on radio would have been the 1992 Men's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. We were at school and it was that was sort of the time difference that allowed it to, a lot of the day-night games to go through our school morning. Mm-hmm. So we sat with our Walkmans. Do you remember those? <laughs> Walkmans. Yeah. Snuck many a Walkman, Walkman into, a, into the back of a high school class I did. So. All the time. All the time. And we would put the headphone up our jersey. It was in the middle of summer and we were wearing jerseys put the headphone up the jersey and sit with the headphone in our ear and a hand over our ear to conceal the fact that we were listening to the cricket and we do this through all our classes because we wanted to know what was going on and obviously South Africa coming back into a World Cup their first ever it was a special occasion they played so well they had incredible games Jonty Rhodes obviously lit things on fire with an amazing run out and his wonderful fielding it was so exciting it was such an exciting time and at school I didn't want to miss any of that <laughs> we were listening during <laughs> class I was doing the same thing at um, first year uni I reckon listening to the, the Lexman and Dravid partnership in 2001 with the Walkman earbud in. that was university though no one cared you, you <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's why I've always got a relationship with Daniel Vittori because his first test match in Australia was in 
well, probably would have been my first year of high school listening to the whole day on the radio, so like right. hiding the earpiece in. So I think it's a nice thing amongst people that love cricket on the radio. We all kind of, at one point or another, found a way to, to do it against the rules so, at school. But yeah. it wasn't it wasn't that sort of British boarding school thing where once in a while they would say, well, you know, Peter May is batting very well. We're going to listen to the BBC in class. Every now and again we would have an announcement. If South Africa had won, I can remember when they beat India, I think it was, there was an announcement to say South Africa's beaten India. But it was, it was so sparse. It wasn't all the time. And, and we kind of wanted to know what was going on all the time. Um, but I do remember, I think it was then, it was starting to get sort of the middle of the tournament when South Africa had the chances of possibly making the semi-final and obviously mm-hmm. something really big. So I think when, I think I seem to remember that announcement somewhere along the line that we had. So you had a firm idea that you wanted to play, but, and, but it wasn't possible basically. What, what did you want to do? How, how did that come about? That you, you visualize, What did you visualise yourself doing as a South African player? So if, when I was about, I'd probably say about 13, the idea of playing sort of got into my head. Um, the 92 World Cup was, was sort of just before that. I was about 11, I think, when the 92 World Cup happened. And a couple of years after that, I started thinking, hang on. I know women do play this game. We had a six-a-side tournament at school, which uh, sort of got me going with the idea of possibly playing. I played in my backyard with my brothers. We had a net in the backyard eventually after a few years of playing. My, my dad sets it up for us, so we were very lucky. And then I said to myself, you know what, actually, this is something I'd like to do. I didn't think of it from a, a job point of view necessarily. I wasn't thinking, you know, oh, I'll make money out of it or I'll make a mm. career out of it necessarily. But it was just because I loved it. I just loved the game so much. And women's cricket back then wasn't very specific. So you had generally in a school team, you probably have three or four people that can play a little bit and they do everything. They bowl, they bat, they, they field in the most important positions. Yep. The rest kind of make up the numbers and that's, that was the reality of where it's we were. It's a familiar basically. tale. Yeah. <laughs> it was a reality, unfortunately. And that's, that made it even more tough, obviously, to get the women involved because nobody wants to sit in an outfield going from final leg to, to third, up and down, up and down and doing absolutely nothing else. How, how on earth are you going to get people interested in the game? It's I don't awesome. mind that because then I can't embarrass myself, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so upon realising that you weren't going to go off and, and play, I guess, the next level of cricket, did you then make the assessment that I'd love to broadcast the game and, and that's why you went and studied it at tertiary level accordingly? Was it always with cricket front of mind? Yeah, cricket was always front of mind. Um, I played a lot of netball. I loved my volleyball as well. Volleyball came a little bit later, though, in my life when I decided I wasn't going to be able to sort of play cricket. I thought, well, I still want to play sports, so I went on to volleyball. But I think I was in college when this sort of idea came to my head of maybe doing broadcasting. I was studying sports management. Yeah, I was studying sports management as a diploma. And I went, we went on a tour of the Wanderers. My lecturer for one of the subjects was the, the, the fitness trainer at the Wanderers, Jeff Lunsky. He took us on a tour of the Wanderers. We went into the dressing rooms. We went into the, the stands. We went into some of the admin offices. They showed us around. They took us on the field. And they took us to the commentary boxes. And I sat there and I was just like looking out from the commentary box on the field. And I said to myself, I want to do this. This is what I want to do. This feels right Everybody else kind of left and I kind of lingered for a little bit longer and I was looking at this and I thought, this is what I want to do. This is, I don't know, I just had like, if you want to call it a light bulb moment, it sounds so cliched, but it, maybe that's pretty much what it was, I guess. A moment of clarity. But uh, it's quite can beautiful. Can we call it that? Maybe a moment of insanity, I'm not sure. But, but to be able to remember that and to come back to that one moment is, is, a, is a really special thing, actually. It's, it's very special that I think, when I think about it now, obviously at the time I was kind of thinking, yeah, this is something I want to do. And anybody I told kind of laughed at me and said, 
yeah, that's never going to happen. It's, you know, you're being silly, get a real job kind of thing, you know, make sure you make some money. My father also, he's the same thing. He was like, no, no, you need a real job, please. You know, don't make me start worrying that you're not going to make any money and you're not going to be self-sufficient. Then I think about it now, though, it's, yeah, it's probably, it's, it's quite special. And it's lovely that you get to do it, well, I mean, on a daily basis. We're sitting in a commentary box at Lord's right now looking out across towards the pavilion on the pitch they'll be using tomorrow and so forth. It's it, You get that, that thrill all the time. That's one of the great things about radio commentary, isn't it? When I walked into Lord's for the first time, it was just to watch South Africa play against Australia. It was a test day. It was back in 2017. I came for the day just to watch. Then the next time after that as a broadcaster was the Women's World Cup final in 2017. Mm. And I can remember looking behind us where there was a queue of people coming in. And I had to pinch myself because I was saying, well, not just at the Women's World Cup final, which had 26,500 people and 180 million watching, it, it, it was, um, yeah, as a broadcaster, is what I wanted to do, sitting in, in the commentary box, just looking at it. There were times when I think I, I must have looked, I had a sort of a glazed look <laughs> over my face to like, because I'm thinking, um, yeah, this is, I've wanted to do this for so long. Going back to um, 2005 when you first get on this amazing roller coaster, it was a rapid jump from wanting to do it. To doing it. Can you explain, I guess, uh, how you, you got recruited uh, and how suddenly you were thrown into the frying pan? It was very rapid. Um, so my lecturer, who I spoke about, Jeff Lunsky, who took us on the tour, I eventually spoke to him at the end of that diploma and I said to him, do you know anybody that I can maybe speak to at the SABC possibly or somebody who can you know, get me in line with someone for commentary? So I said, yeah, don't worry, we've got Lawrence Mahatlani who, I don't know if you guys have met him. You, Jeff, you might have met him. He was a commentator at one stage. He's now the SA Under-19 coach. He'd done commentary for a long time. And he said, yes, uh, get on to Lawrence. He, I'll give you his number. You can speak to him. I phoned him. He gave me the producer's number at SABC. Had a chat with him, Don van der Bach, and he said to me, um, we are looking for women. This is great timing. We've got the Women's uh, World Cup semifinals coming up in South Africa. We are covering it for SABC in Potchefstroom. And I thought, okay, great. He said, come in, we'll have a chat. We'll do a little impromptu sort of interview at the ground at the Wanderers with Zimbabwe being there. And um, he said to me at the, on that day when I, when I went in, please send a demo tape in and we'll you know, maybe chat a little bit further. Before I could send the demo tape in, um, I ended up with a phone call to say, your contract's ready, please come and sign <laughs> it. And I was like, okay. And then they said, you'll be working on the 5th of April, which is the first semi-final. I said, oh, that's my birthday. What a great birthday present. So I just happened to start <laughs> on my birthday. And and that's basically how it was. We drove to Potchefstroom, did the work that day, went back, did the next semi-final a couple of days later. Right, that's the Australia-England semi-final, the first yeah, one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was, which is a really huge game. So I, I was, yeah, because England, England ended, up, ended up losing yeah. in the semi-final which was obviously a little bit surprising to everybody and then you had New Zealand, India and eventually India ended up losing in that, that other semi-final. In a nice callback, that's the only time that two of your broadcasters, Mel Jones and Isha Guha, played against each other in an international, the yeah. 2005 yeah, yeah. semi-final in South <laughs> yeah. Africa. It's, of that it's incredible. That. And Ali Mitchell was at that game as well oh, was she? doing reporting. Oh, that's so, amazing. Yeah, she was so also... all of you were there in different capacities. Charlotte Edwards was also playing. Naturally. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like the Young Avengers kind of <laughs> yeah, origin yeah. story, you know, the teenage versions of Batman and <laughs> <laughs> I was asking MJ about it recently and she says she remembers them. So there was a, I think it was a washout day maybe earlier in the tournament. Yes. And, the, and, and they were eyeing each other off across the field. They didn't know who each other were because in that era, they seldom played against each other. An occasional bilateral series. And, and there'd be no video, no, no broadcast. Yeah. So Nothing. she's like, oh, that must be that young bowler, Isha Guha. And, you know, it's kind of a nice <laughs> thing to think that now that yeah. you've all had these amazing career trajectories. And then you go into the commentary box and, I mean, before long, you're sitting next to someone like Neil Manthorpe. Who he was my first person that I worked with. Right. 
So you know, someone who's a giant, a giant of the industry, you know, been around for a gazillion years without wanting to cast suspicions about how old manners might be. <laughs> but, you know, someone who's very experienced and, and accomplished as a broadcaster, and there you are sitting next to him. What was it like, you know, being there on day one with Banthorpe? I was, I was lucky that the producer, first of all, was, was really kind in the sense he said to me, I'm going to give you a 10-minute stint with Neil Manthorpe, who is obviously one of our best. I mean, Neil's done pretty much every game South Africa's played since readmission, so mm. he's, he's incredible. And even at the time, that had already been 13-odd years or whatever it was. And he, my producer said, I'm going to give you just a 10-minute stint with, with, with Neil Manthorpe. And... Um, I said, okay, great. Obviously, I was very nervous. I do not remember a word that I said in that first stint. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea what I said. So you were summarising. I was summarising, yeah. So he was doing the lead and he he has this natural way of making you feel comfortable. And that is an art in itself, never mind yep. the commentary side of it. Because when you are so nervous, it's very difficult to get people to sort of relax. I mean, I've had to try and do that with people. It's very, yep. very difficult because you don't know that person. You don't know that person, how, how that, what they like. You don't know what their strengths are. You've got no idea. He had this very natural way of making me feel comfortable, even though I have absolutely no idea what I said that day. <laughs> I do remember making a little, a, a bit of what actually was a bit of a crude joke, but I think I was trying to relax myself. I might have to tell you that maybe off, off, the, off the podcast. I <laughs> know <laughs> oh, this podcast is a very, uh, it's a very open forum. Our listeners don't mind. It just depends whether you're happy. <laughs> yeah, I think I'll tell you later. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So it's so it was good enough for South African radio. But, but, it was one of those moments where afterwards I was like, did I really say that? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of those moments with uh, with Jim last year with when when Tianus De Brain and Quinton De Kock were batting together at uh <laughs> it, it, it ended up all right in the end. Yeah, he, he doesn't miss an opportunity with Jim with, with those kind of uh, own yeah. goals or tapping goals. Uh, the, the technical side of radio calling that I wanted to uh, ask you about as well. So very quickly you go from being a student to getting this amazing opportunity, having a contract presented to you. I mean, what Jeff and I would do to get such an opportunity in our in our career some years on. It's a, it's a great story, great tale. You're on air. But the technical side of radio calling isn't, I mean, it's not rocket surgery, but but it's not easy either. There is some there are some parts to that, uh, the mechanics of it, which don't come naturally. You need to learn how to do it and, and so on. Yeah. What was that like for you? Was it mostly by osmosis having listened to radio growing up or did you have to go through a, a fairly sort of exhaustive schooling process? Some of it was sort of listening and picking up a few things, but the most of it actually came from Glenn Mitchell. He worked at the ABC for oh, years right. and years. He yeah, was my yeah. mentor for years. Wonderful. Yeah, he, he was fantastic because I met him in 2009, it would have been, when they came over to yep. South Africa. They had Jim Maxwell and Glenn Mitchell and a couple of other guys working with them doing the South African, doing ABC's own coverage in South Africa. And um, he, he, he heard some of my stuff that I'd done and I was just moving into lead at the time. And he was like, well, do you want some help? And I'm like... Of course, like especially from somebody like him who's done so many sports as well. And I think sure. yeah. that's important yep. is knowing that the basics of commentary are very similar for all sorts of sports, but it's nice to have that grounding within other sports as well. And he, he gave me the most incredible tips. He would listen in on my commentary and then help me straight afterwards, which I think was the most important part because nothing festered. You didn't develop bad habits, which is very hard to change, obviously, especially while you're on air. And he, he helped me with the basics of commentary. And he, and one of the most important things he said to me was, you, you, must, or you copy substance but not style. So you have your own style, you have your own personality, but the basics of commentary, the technicalities of commentary, that you copy because there are certain things you should do. Speaking in presence, Intense, for example, speaking, keeping up with the action. Don't miss a delivery. There's, there's basic things that 
as a listener, you probably don't really pick it up necessarily, but as a commentator, they're pretty important. You're on radio, describe the action, give the score, make sure people know what the score is because it's so easy to get wrapped up in it. And I think we get tired of hearing ourselves say the score over and over, but people need to know what's going yeah. on. Well, there's always someone who's just tuned in. Between yeah. every ball, there's a new listener to the exactly. broadcast. Absolutely. And, and it can become so easy just to, you assume you know that Cole is on 80, so when he gets a single, of course, he's 81, but someone else doesn't yeah. know What that. over are they in? What's the target? Yeah. Um, it, what happened before? You've got three wickets falling, but who are the three that were out? What happened? I mean, could be anything controversial. What has happened? Yeah, and people are furious when they when they don't get the score enough as well. I remember when, when Jeff and I were doing some work with one of the broadcasters a few years ago in their social media accounts and the amount of responses to tweets, which were basically, why don't you read the score so much? And to our way of thinking, the score was being read out plenty, but, yeah. but it's a different experience when you're down the other end the other end of the radio. Yeah, I mean, the basic thing that, that Glenn said to me was update the score at the beginning of an over, end of an over, middle of an over, and a score change. That's how yeah. often you should really be mm. updating the score. That's a lot. I mean, I get tired of saying it. You know, <laughs> you just hear it like, echoing in your head, but it is important. Well, especially when it doesn't change when, when someone's <laughs> betting out for a draw. But, um, it's a really nice overlap because Glenn Mitchell was. Um, very important with us as well. He he did just sort of as a, a fun project. He worked with us on on White Line Wireless yeah. for a bit, which was a, a sort of informal commentary service, shall we say? And and That's he, one way of describing it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but he would patch in. He'd Skype in down the line from Perth and, and do commentary with us remotely and, and give us tips and give us feedback on each session. And you know that was the first commentary that I was doing was was with Glenn as well. So yeah, he he made a big difference to to, to me. I mean, if it wasn't for him, I don't think that I would have made the strides that I've made. So was their pushback initially I mean you said Cass had kind of laid done the first push I guess and, and the fact that you were able to see her on a magazine and then yeah. and then work with her that's kind of lovely in itself and, yeah. and, and she's still there being the sort of calming influence to the whole commentary you know she, is. <laughs> she, she sort of manages the whole thing but you know was there resistance initially to, to having women broadcast yeah, I, th- I think so, especially from the, the ex-players within within the commentary boxes. And I, and I can understand that because here's somebody walking in as, as basically a journalist. What do they know about the game? How much work have they done behind the scenes? Have they ever played the game? And I can understand that. It's a natural reaction. And we sort of, as human beings, we gravitate to what we know and people that we know. And that's just that's just part of life. Um, and I think in many ways the, the, the ex-players will gravitate towards people, one, that they played with, two, that have just generally played the game you, you can't help that so I think in the beginning there was definitely a sort of a pushback as to like okay hang on what is this woman doing here mm. eventually after a few years of, of hard graft and, and doing a lot of research um, I mean you guys know what it's like research is so important and it's tedious and tiring but it's it's really really important and I think after doing that you eventually start to get a little bit of respect working for international broadcasters like the BBC who have been absolutely they're just so fantastic um, I love working with them they've they've been amazing to me and, and given me opportunities I think eventually you know you get the you get you get respect so that's something I think about when I think about watching you commentate and that and working with you is that you keep meticulous handwritten notes. <laughs> and that's Not neat handwritten notes. <laughs> still, but they, but they are, there, there are a lot of notes. Yes. And, and research is perhaps the one thing that people don't see uh, or hear, rather. It's that classic sort of duck underneath the water, isn't it? Like you've got to give the impression of calm and cool, but you, you, you're kicking really hard because you want to absorb as much information as you can and relay it to the listener in a way that's digestible and interesting and stuff they don't know, really, is what it comes down to. So... 
your handwritten process is not one that we see replicated across the world. Most people now just punch, punch something up on their laptop and yes. maybe they don't do anything at all. That's been a criticism of Jeff and mine of some commentators is that they, they rock up and, yep. and do the job. Um, some ex-players fall into this category and rely on the fact that they have a deep history in the game but perhaps not a deep history in broadcasting but you're the polar opposite of that. So talk us through if you're doing a, a game in this World Cup and let's assume it's a non-South African game. Mm -hmm. Give us a sense of how much work you will do before you step behind the mic. Okay, so I'm actually doing uh, New Zealand versus uh, Pakistan on Wednesday in Birmingham. So that will be my one yep. non-South African game. So what I did before the World Cup even started when I was back at home, I had a few weeks to myself, which is always helpful because you know what it's like. You're really busy. It's tough to get the research in sometimes. I sat and went through every team and made a list of everyone who's in the squad. Made a list of the averages, whether it be bowling, batting, or both, obviously, sometimes their strike rates, their economy rates, etc., all the basic stats. Then I went made a list of their debut, what they did on their debut, what if their highest score is 150, who they made it against, when it was, did the team win, etc. And then a, a little bit of a backstory on each of them. In particular, the players you obviously don't know. Um, mm. Gorbidi Nayib, he was an amateur uh, bodybuilder at yep. one stage. So things like that, make yep. notes of their the little story, something that's hopefully interesting to people um, and make sort of notes on, on, on their backstory and how they came into cricket, things that people might not know. Obviously, we don't know everything about all the players. It's hard to get information sometimes on some of the players, new players as well. It's very or, tough. Or, to or there's that. the risk that it's the same one piece of information. Yes, like, exactly. oh, Peter Siddle eats bananas and then suddenly oh, that's all you hear 483 times for the rest of the summer. Exactly. And that those are the type of things that come from generally a, a normal profile page. But if you go back and, and read articles that were written, I find those are some of the best bits of information. So I'll just Google the player, go and go through articles. If there's someone I'm very unsure of, there's a few questions that I have, I'll read through all of their articles, things yeah. that were written on them to give me information. You'll again have a lot of the same information running through some of the same narratives, but you will find bits that are really good because there are some fantastic written journalists out there who do research as well and they do love little stories podcasts those type of things you find out great things from podcasts but, but also those journalists are often in the press box on the yep. day and so you can go and pick their brains and get little exactly. bits of information from you know you know the pakistan packer is traveling with that team so you yep. you go and hit up a couple of people and say what else do i need to know yep. about or habrias or whatever it might exactly. be pronunciation is another thing that yeah. i like checking on and which you're big on as well I've, i mean your your pronunciation uh, has been something that we've we've noticed over the journey especially with south african players and i think that informs. I think we take the lead from you in that the, the way you choose to pronounce yeah. names I, I will make a point of and, and make sure I follow suit. I think what's great nowadays is that the, the technology helps so much. I mean if, if, if I can't find someone who might be able to give me pronunciation I'll go through Google Translate for example. Yep. That helps a little bit. It's not always right because yep. um, obviously there's different dialects and that type of thing but voice notes. Best thing ever invented because Mel Jones started this thing. She's great with it. She will go to the media liaisons and ask them just to read out the list of the squad and send the voice notes <laughs> on to whoever wants them, who is ever, who is ever interested, in particular right. with the women's game because there are some teams you don't know much yep. about. And Sri Lanka, for example, they change their squad so often. You don't know mm. the players. You don't know how to pronounce them. So go and get voice notes and send it off. And I'm thieving that idea. We're definitely going to start it's, doing it's that. It's great. That's it's, fantastic. It's such a good thing and you keep it. It's such an easy thing to keep as well. Keep a record of it and you just listen to it. And at least try. You may not get it right, but at least try.
Is that something that is particularly pressing given um, the, the way that society works in South Africa? So I noticed working over there, I, I was working with you in 2018 on radio and TV for SABC covering that test series and it's very noticeable that SABC has a wide range of callers. They have callers from all kinds of uh, racial backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, genders, the mm. whole lot. There's, there's, you know, the representation's amazing. But you have to make sure, you know, okay, this is a Corsa name, so this is how I pronounce this name when this commentator joins me on air. This is a, a Pakistan Muslim name, so I've got to make sure I get that one right. And it's important to do. It's a, a matter of respect to get people's names right. But is that something that you're, you know, does that society make you much more conscious of that? I think it does. I think, I mean, everybody knows South Africa's history. It's a very colourful history and it's a, certainly a very sad history as well. But we are in this amazing, if you want to call it a melting pot, whatever you want to call it, of cultures where we are exposed to all sorts of different cultures, which is actually a great thing. I think it's fantastic because you learn about other people's religions, their way of life, their, their, their ideas, and also things like how do you pronounce the name? I mean, Nuleki Sabo, for example, he's fantastic. I, I love working with him. He's been working with SABC just about as long as, I think it's actually the same mm. as what, I, what I've been working with. And he can do any sport. He can do rugby, football. He can do, he can do anything. I always phone him as well if I'm going to be doing a game where I don't know how to pronounce the name, for example, especially with football. And he, he, he also, again, sends a voice note and says, there you go. This is how you pronounce it. I mean, Andila Pechlukwayo, for example, I've still got the voice notes on, on my phone to show because people ask me all the time, like, yeah. how do you pronounce it so I just there you go that's the voice note you want me to send it to you there you go there's been a great it. education around his name through this week up I think so that, that is everyone's the one name it. everyone's worked really hard I, 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 I think agree. so yeah, yeah to try to get the you know the, the sort of there's it's, that half aspirated H um, yeah. at the end of the first syllable yeah. I wanted to ask you about when you've got that sort of diversity and looking at it from the outside, we can have this slightly idealistic view of saying, oh, isn't it great they've had women in commentary for 15 years in South Africa? It's not exactly necessarily the case that South Africa is a perfectly progressive, um, you know, gender equal paradise either so I wanted to, to get your assessment of that of, of what the reality of, of things is on the ground Yeah I think from if you look f just just look at the women's uh, the national team for example they have made massive strides I don't doubt that for, for a second and Cricket South Africa are attempting to obviously make it as equal as possible but they're nowhere near where I believe they should be and what the girls deserve either um, and that's just sort of a microcosm for where we're kind of at um, there are strides being made but is it enough no it's not enough i don't think women are getting necessarily what they 100 percent deserve but we are on a wonderful journey at the moment i mean cass Snyder, for example her g-sport that she started many years ago now i think she started it was 2006 2007 which is an, a website that showcases women's sport for example those are the type of things we need and we need more of them and it's it's a wonderful project where the government has got involved in it as well and endorsed it and she's done a lot of the hard work behind the scenes i'd love it to be a case of well it's just kind of the norm but it really isn't the norm it's still something that's sort of an extra like yeah. you've got that women's website yep. and those type of things you want it to kind of be the norm but it's right. not and, and more broadly socially as well I, yep. I remember when when Candace Warner was getting abused by the crowds uh, speaking to it with some of the South African journalists and the line that stayed with me one of them said uh, there's no me too movement in South mm. Africa yes. there was a, a real sense that that things are a long way behind on that front. Yeah, they are a long way behind on that front. And it's sad to say, um, because then it's again a cultural type of thing. And I think when people are also looking from the outside, they might question certain things. Like, for example, a Zulu man can marry as many women as he wants, as long as he can look after them. But there's nothing wrong with that, essentially, if 
obviously that is your culture and you may not subscribe to it as long as the women are being treated right and they're being looked after that is within their culture it works within their culture but um, there's other situations where, for example, the, the amount of ab- women abuse, child abuse, rape, all those type of things are pretty alarming within South Africa. I don't know what the stats are, but they are pretty alarming within South Africa. And a lot of that goes down to respecting women. To tie a couple of these threads together, um, do you think that partially the volume of research you do and how prepared you are is governed by the fact that as a woman you'll be held to a much higher standard and if you were to fall short of the mark that you've set that that would be a very unsympathetic response you would get? Yeah, Ebony Rainford Brent introduced me to a phrase that I'm never going to forget and I'm sure it's something I'm going to use, imposter syndrome. Um, I've never really heard that phrase used really too often in South Africa, but that's certainly what you feel. You feel like someone's going to turn around and go, what are you doing here? You don't belong here and kick you out kind of thing. So you have to make sure your research is 100% up to date. You can't mess up a stat. You can't make a mistake. And I can't help it that when you do make a mistake, it kind of echoes in your head. (laughs) Yeah. And this is probably, this might be an area where the three of us have more in common um, than perhaps Ebony and Isha and Mel Jones and others who have played international cricket because whilst they are accomplished broadcasters, they have that body of work before they entered the sport. Those who are broadcasters first and do the commentary but don't have a professional playing background, it is an interesting cohort that we operate in because there has been a tendency, especially on television, and we'll come to the distinctions there in a minute, but broadly in television, to use past players um, as the commentator mm. as well. And you, you've talked about that before, that your personal view is that there is a, there is a nice balance between yes. broadcasters and, and professional analysts. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, that, that line to draw is quite important. You, you have to have past players. You have to have someone who has faced 180 or, listen to me, 150 kilometres an hour. You have, to, you have yep. to actually have that. But you also need a broadcaster who's going to come in and give a slightly different view, whether it be as the story that is trying to be told, the broadcaster will bring that in, whether it's a technical point of view as well, because there are technicalities to both TV and radio. Yeah. So those things, I find them, I find them very important. Um, I think you need that balance. But there's no doubt that when you are in just as a broadcaster and you haven't got the professional playing background, you do feel that sort of anxiety of like, oh, someone's going to turn around and say, you don't belong yeah. Or you might not get a body of work that you, you feel that you could actually be really good for, those type of things. And, and it's a reality we face pretty much every day. And interestingly, with... with from an Australian perspective, last year when there was two broadcasters, not one, Fox Sports elected to stick with, I think, exclusively former players. There might have been one or two. Mark Howard. But Mark Howard is the, the exception, yep. spot on. But Channel 7 elected to have their, their play-by-play call, so to speak, being led by Tim Lane and Alison Mitchell, who mm. haven't played professional cricket. There yep. were some former players who did play-by-play for them as well. But it is interesting that even philosophically, there that is a debate that's ongoing. Mm. But radio seems to be you know, free of that for the most part. There is still a role. Uh, it's rare that you see a former player be in the spot as a caller. Isha's one that stands out, of course, Jonathan Agnew's another, but mostly it is that divide you're talking about, that healthy balance. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I think I love about radio as well, is that it's a, it's a medium that I find as fair as possible. You don't also have to be in a former international player necessarily. They'll use domestic players, players that have been really good domestically. They'll also even at times use journalists as somebody who will be a summariser as well yep. and that also works as well. So yep, I enjoy the, the, the sort of balance that, that radio brings to it. There are every now and again those the TV broadcasters that will see the value in bringing the broadcasters in, which I think is important. And Harsha Bogley, 
he obviously is one of the, yeah, the big names that, that come out and you, you can't deny how good he is how popular he is people absolutely love listening to him and Alison Mitchell again she is obviously she's she's done amazing work and it's so good to see because it does make you sort of think okay well maybe it's possible for me to do it I'd be interested to see um, wh- what happens with the 100 next year with BBC now bringing in some TV coverage if they're going to have the same sort of balance yeah what what their what their approach will be from mm. there because it it could be an opportunity to well they're saying they want a completely new audience basically yeah. so do they go for something completely different I think so much of it is about having the ability having the the resources to be able to capture a moment and describe a moment well and there would be some former players who can do that and who can broadcast really well but it's not necessarily everybody and just because you made 30 test hundreds doesn't mean that you can give the most uh, emotionally capture the moment in the best possible way when something really significant happens and and those are the moments i think where a, a professional broadcaster whatever their background is the biggest possible asset when the moment really matters and when the description of it matters and when the commentary of that is going to be replayed in 20 years time as as the you know the defining description of that moment you've got to get it right oh absolutely and there, there are obviously some past players who are brilliant at it Ian Bishop I think I think he's fantastic I mean oh, they're, they're remember little, the name <laughs> but, but also the package of him with uh, with Carlos Brathwaite in, in, against New Zealand the other night the hundred you know that was, that was ex- extraordinary commentary and, and they cut it together beautifully absolutely brilliant and, and he, he for me he, I, I mean uh, I absolutely love working with him I think he's a fantastic broadcaster and of course he's, he is a past player who's also very humble you ask him about his playing career and he kind of brushes you aside and wants to sort of talk about somebody else so there are past players who do it really well but there are also some broadcasters who would do it really well also and by contrast there are some past players who are just not built for commentary and there's some broadcasters who maybe should be thinking about doing something else possibly <laughs> but um, and that works with anything doesn't it i mean it's the same with coaching some international former internationals make brilliant coaches and others, it's not necessarily for them. They find it very difficult to coach players and get them to do the things that they actually want them to do. Yeah, Lawrence Booth, who was on our show oh, a couple of months ago now, wrote a really good piece for the Night Watchman a couple of years ago about the, the, the power of the outside observer when it comes to writing about cricket. And I think the same applies for commentary. Another thread of your career, which is interesting to Jeff and I, is the fact that, like us, you're a freelancer. That is to say, we lead a really weird life, a very transient, odd <laughs> existence, a very nomadic um, uh, way that we get from place to place and so forth and it can be quite hard graph but like us you've made the decision to to be a, a, a traditional freelancer H- how do you find balancing that because i guess the major affliction for freelancers it's very hard to say no it's very hard to say no and that we that's one of the pieces of advice actually one of the first things glenn mitchell did say to me is don't say yes to everything because there are going to be certain things certain bodies of work that are not going to be good for your career they might be good for somebody else but they're not going to be necessarily good for you don't say yes to everything and also you you always want to impress in the beginning so you end up when you first start doing a lot for free and people will turn around and say oh but you know you're just talking about the game why can't you just do that for free but that's how I make my living so this is you know it's it's my experience my expertise my my thoughts that's how I make a living so I think that's important but yeah freelancing is an interesting life there's some amazing pluses about it one you obviously make your own time you make your own off time as well so you can go on holiday you know whenever you want to yeah. if, if funds allow it of course yeah, well, uh, that's that's an interesting in theory, one. Yeah. yeah in theory it is yeah absolutely and it's it's it is scary because you don't always know what's coming in for the year and you try and budget as much as you can but that word budget I, I 
don't I think I'm yet to actually really understand what a budget is. <laughs> it's also weirdly competitive, and yes. I, don't, I try not to think of it this way. I try to think of it as a, a as a collaborative as a collaborative effort mm. where communally we want to see everyone else do well but it's almost impossibly not impossible rather not to think of uh, some parts of it as competitive because by extension if you've been selected someone else has missed out and vice yeah. versa uh, and, and it can be tough because the freelance community in the cricket world we're all very close that's the thing i think we're, we're kind of like a family it's a smallish family but it's starting to get sort of bigger and bigger the pool of commentators is obviously starting to get yep. bigger which is great for the game and the women's game is getting bigger and bigger which means you're bringing in you have to bring in more commentators there's more and more t20 competitions around the world so there's a lot of opportunities but it is still scary at times when you think oh hang on if i'm not sort of front of mind for this tournament the next tournament i might not get work there's yeah. always that possibility if you set this one out and someone mm. else does really well and and yeah. so on but then as you say you, you never want to be thinking that way because so much of the time we're relying on each other and, and helping each other out and there's a, a this inherent collegiality in that freelance best community. broadcast that i ever worked on was definitely the women's world cup in 2017 because everybody worked to a common goal. Everybody. I, I wanted to ask you about and, that and specifically. Like crazy. <laughs> we did. We did. I mean, I remember one day now, I think it was you and I, uh, and Jeff as well, yeah, where the, the three the of us were running, we were running from television to radio for the whole hundred overs of the game. Yeah. And it was an exhilarating experience yeah. and I loved yeah. every heartbeat of it. But, mm. you know, that stands out as some of the, the more high-octane work we've had to do and it wouldn't have worked unless we had each other to rely on. But the 2017 World Cup, Nat, and I hope you don't mind me asking you this, but it left a, 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 an indelible mark on you and left lit, a literal mark on, on you as well. Well, I mean, you, you yeah. were so you were so um, you were so touched and moved by that summer and the experience we all shared together that you you went and inked up. I did. I got an ink tattoo on on, on the back here, on my left shoulder. <laughs> Don't know if you can see it. You can't see it on the podcast. No, but you won't be. But you guys can see it. Uh, yeah. I, I've seen it before. I know the I know the uh, the uh, WWC twenty seventeen and the microphone and so yeah. forth. To, and to, then the logo, the, the picture, the logo. Logo. Uh, I mean, this uh, perhaps relates to that to an extent, but. Having had conversations with you after dark and you know, when we're, we're socialising, yes. you have a spiritual side to you. Like yes. you, have a, you, have, uh, you have an energy about you, which I think that lends itself to like, yeah, getting a tattoo about a great <laughs> moment. It it's sort of feels like the way that you're built in that you've got this strong sense of um, embracing the moment and, and, and reflecting on things that are really important. Sometimes to my detriment, especially when you're on a diet, for example, <laughs> so, and you see the cake that we had here at Lord's, yeah, like, yeah. that's me embracing the moment. Oh, that cake <laughs> looks great. I'm going to eat it now. And then later you start thinking, did I really just do that? Um, but no, the, 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 the tat, I mean, it was, it was a, a, a big moment in my career to be part of the Women's World Cup. It was also a big moment in women's sport. Mm. To be at that final 26,500 people, the, the hundreds of millions of people that watched the tournament, it was groundbreaking. Mm. Uh, we've got a lot of work to do since then, and I, they really need to obviously keep the momentum going. That's incredibly important, but I, f I do think it's important to embrace that moment and to never, never forget it. I think, I think that is really important. And... I suppose in a way that's where the spirituality sort of comes in as well. I believe in the universe providing and you also giving back to the universe mm. as well. I believe in all of that. So I think that's important. And it's got nothing to do with religion. It's got nothing to do with any of that stuff. It's just I believe that if there's something that I want, I can get it, but I've also got to then give back something mm. as well yeah. at the same time. And, and I'm aware that you know people. some people might think that we're kind of hamming it up the way Adam and I have talked about it as well. But being at that match that day, there was this palpable 
emotion to it you know you were all over the place Ellie Mitchell was Isha Evan everybody was you know either thinking about crying or had just been crying or <laughs> it was about to cry or um it, but, but the the tension in the air and and the investment the focus on the field and and as England started running through those wickets at the end it was just one of the most extraordinary sporting experiences I, I loved every minute of it everything the lead up to it the, the waking up in the morning all those things I mean I cried at the semi-final when South Africa ended up losing in that very tight finish I yeah. won't lie I did cry and then I, Ebony was in tears at the final when, when England won obviously tears of joy Isha was also feeling it as well Ali would have been certainly feeling it um, I think Mel and I who were neutrals also kind of got caught up and at least Sister Lake as well got caught up in this a bit of sort of emotion hearing the drums at Lords they let the drums in at yeah, Lords I couldn't right. believe yeah. it it was great it just added obviously to the atmosphere we had a beautiful Indian contingent next to our, our sort of left hand side of the commentary box mostly everybody on the, our right hand side of the commentary box was English fans and you, you the best part about that was that if India did something well then obviously the Indian fans would go crazy if England did yeah. something well then the England fans would go crazy as well so it created this beautiful atmosphere with this sort of push and pull with the crowd and oh you, you those are those are moments that you're never going to probably replicate that again it's never going to be exactly the same um and i think it, it's it's obviously important then to just take that momentum forward um we, we spoke to claire connor uh, about that day on the show oh geez about two years ago possibly mm-hmm. now my memories of it sitting in the in the box over here we're looking out to the right in the grandstand here and the response to it was just so uh, joyous um in a way that you don't ne- always necessarily get with men's cricket like yeah. it just felt like a different and, and also i think claire spoke about the the sound of the game it didn't it sounded more youthful yeah uh, and, and i think there was quite a lovely contrast between the fact that all of the grandstands around the Lords, around the Horseshoe, were all full, and the pavilion wasn't. And that really stood out all day. That the, the MCC did not embrace the Women's World Cup for whatever reason, not administratively. Administratively, the MCC is a, a very progressive organisation, but the membership didn't show up to that final, which which was a real contrast because the rest of the ground was heaving when Anya yeah. went on and took that took that final wicket. But that final spell, five for eleven in five overs or whatever it was to blast through India's lower order from kind of nowhere. I said at the time on that it's the best thing I've seen live at, at, at any international game of cricket was that spell on the basis of the, the response around the ground. So I can fully understand why there was a lot of emotion from those who'd played professional yeah. women's cricket when they were playing in front of you. Look at the 2009 World Cup final when England won the World Cup then. As Ali Mitchell, I think, who might have been there um, commentating on that, she wrote that she it was, was pretty much yeah. friends and family. Mm. Friends and family saw England win the previous World Cup and yeah. then this one, the one in 2020, 17 was a completely different experience. Totally different experience. And I think the, the great thing was watching the kids stay behind because they wanted autographs from the players and, and, and that type of thing. And the most yeah. beautiful photo as well of Anya Shrubsall when she was younger looking into yeah. Lords and then seeing her when she's older. I mean, that's just... With her dad, watching her dad play at Lords and then replicating the, the photo. It was brilliant, wasn't most it? Most incredible moments. Those are moments that are, are very, very special. Obviously, her with her arms outstretched. It would have been great if that was the picture they used on the front of the Wisden. I mean, the picture of yeah. the trophy is great but I would have rather had the one with the emotion arms outstretched looking to the heavens where she, she ended up winning the game for England but uh, I think what the best part about it is that we can talk about all these moments and how mm. precious it was and that we all remember it there's so many people who have an experience of that day and as you said in previous World Cups you would never have had that opportunity for everybody to start talking about what their experience was from that day and that it's possible to go back and see it again you know it's not yeah, lost in the, in the mists of 
of time. Yeah. Another thing that is going to be special is test match number 86 for you. You've done 85, but 86 will be the first women's test that you've called. You're doing the Ashes test between Australia and England uh, in well, a couple of weeks from now, just after the World Cup final. Yeah, 18th of July. Can't wait for that day in Taunton. I'm obviously hoping that from a cricket point of view that there's going to be a good wicket that's going to produce some really good cricket. Um, the women's game being very different to the men's. I watched a lot of um, the previous test match, which you had that opportunity to stream it, which, of course, you wouldn't have before. Yeah, absolutely. I've heard the stories from previous test matches from the likes of Charlotte Edwards, Lydia Greenway, Ebony Rainford Brent, Ishigua. They've all told me stories of previous test matches. Uh, Mel Jones, Lisa Stalaker, they've all given me their sort of accounts of ones that they've either watched or played in. And it's, it's, it's so interesting to, to listen to the rivalry between the two teams because we always talk about the men's rivalry and the Ashes and how big it is and you know England and Australia live for that but the women do as well it's 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 in my opinion a better format as well because they've got the points for the ODIs points for the T20s points yeah. for the test match and I think that's a great way to do it that's my opinion some will say no the test matches are all that's important and that's yeah. that's fair enough um, I actually think it's a, a format they should adopt for all women's series around the world because it doesn't take much to schedule a four day test match it doesn't take much at all from a logistical point of view it's only an extra four days that's not a lot everybody's hungry for it within the game as well you know all of the players from exactly. other teams want it yeah Exactly. Well, uh, some, sometimes when you talk to administrators about this, which we have quite a bit, they point to South Africa as not having, as one of the countries doesn't have the capacity for it. They say that Australia and England have played Test cricket, but um, in order to make it cross over more borders, it would require multi-day cricket in South Africa, India, the West Indies, and other countries which are at that next. I wouldn't say next tier down. That's probably not yeah. quite a fair depiction, but haven't quite had as much professionalisation as yet. Is there any prospect of multi-day cricket in South Africa for the women? Uh, at a domestic level, yeah. I mean. Unfortunately, domestically, they, they need a major overhaul anyway, just for the one-day right. stuff, because they they play once a month against the different provinces, where they play a one-day game and a T20 Saturday and Sunday, mm -hmm. and then they play with their own clubs. So that's, I mean, that's got to change. They've got to do a major change of that because you cannot be playing once a month and expect the girls to do well and then reach international level and then be able to perform. The, one of the main reasons South Africa did so well in 2017 was because the likes of Danae Fanika, Marizan Cup, Shabnan Ishmael, etc. were playing in T20 leagues yeah, around yeah. the world. That's one of the main reasons that they did. And that's taking nothing away from the backroom staff within the South African team. They're just on kind of a hiding to nothing because a girl comes up from the, the domestic competition and they're not they're not internationally equipped for it from a skills point of view so the coach has got to sit and work on these skills and stuff which you shouldn't be doing at international level and South Africa is not the only country that happens of course so a four-day format I highly doubt it but I do think that they could still have the chance to play test matches because they played back in 2014 I think it was against India the one test yeah. match there's a few of the players that played then there was nothing wrong with the test. Um, there was a bit of rain about and etc. There's nothing you can do about that. But in the recent series against Pakistan, they played three ODIs and I think five T20s or something. You don't mm. need to play that many. You can play three T20s, three ODIs and a test match. We've got Why the not? format now as well with the multi-format point yeah. system they use for the Ashes. It's such a popular format. Absolutely. It's just a matter of... I mean, the players want it. Every player you ask... It's almost a unity ticket when you speak to Australian players and England players too. They, 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 they all agree that there should be an opportunity to play test cricket. So there is a disconnect between the playing group and administrators who want to see a focus just on white ball cricket. I mean, of course, there are reports in Australia a few years ago 
row of, of, of administrators at Cricket Australia wanted to get rid of one-day cricket as well. So thankfully that view did not prevail. But it, it's reflective of how this, these conversations are being had. They're, 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 there's competition of the views and I think that's a healthy thing that we're getting to the stage where people care enough that we're willing to thrash it out. And the great thing nowadays is that because of the advent of the internet and certain cameras, it won't cost a lot to stream that mm. because you just need a few cameras, one behind the, the bowler's arm on each side and maybe a square camera. That's all you need. And that's what I know Pitch Vision in South Africa is doing a great job with that. Pitch Vision is up here in England as well. They're doing a fantastic job. All the women's domestic stuff is being streamed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you don't have commentators in the beginning, well, then you don't. But stream it, create the interest. And it doesn't cost yeah. a lot to do that. Or, you know, you can, if you have people willing to do the, the hard yards, like Adam White doing, <laughs> doing uh, Victorian Shield games on his own. <laughs> yeah. Is wow. it doing, full, doing a full six and a half hour day or whatever it is on no, the No, they mic. do it for the Big Bash. People the Women's Big Bash it. League, yeah. they, they, they have a, a caller and a summariser for every one of those games on the on the website when the TV broadcasters aren't doing it. So I'm certain that if there was multi-day cricket, it would get covered. Yeah, yeah. just a lot of butter menthols. And <laughs> yeah. We do it, Jeff. <laughs> that would be over in a heartbeat as well, I'm sure. I'd, I'd do it. I would do it in a heartbeat. Nat, you've... You know, progress happens. It's maybe slow, but it, it happens, and you've been at the forefront of a lot of that, and uh, we appreciate your efforts. Thanks for coming on The Final Word. Thanks very much for having me. It was great fun. This is The Final Word with Storytime. Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins coming to the end of another meandering weekend edition of Tales Through Cricket History. Thank you to Natalie Germanos for taking time out of her busy life during last year's Men's World Cup when things were happening right, left and centre. We got to have that chat with her at Lords and uh, enjoyed it greatly. And if you hadn't heard it before, I, I hope you enjoyed hearing about the interesting life that she's had. Yeah, she's without a doubt one of the the best people in the game uh, in terms of who we sort of get a chance to work with as well. It's an absolute privilege to share the commentary box with her from time to time. We've mentioned uh, over the last couple of weeks that now that we're doing story time every week, it'd be great to have a sponsor to go hand in hand with that. So if you You've listened this deeply into the show. If you're still with us, you're still in there punching, then uh, maybe you or, or somebody you know may want to work with us at The Final Word, and that'd be fantastic because we are really enjoying uh, story time. It's a fantastic addition to, I guess, what we're doing each week through The Final Word community, but I, I suppose in, in, in terms of uh, the space we have to offer, it's more than it was before. So drop us a line at finalwordcricket at gmail.com, or if you're already on our Patreon page, just simply slip us a DM or, or get in touch in Twitter. We're all ears on that front the show is released by bad producer productions it is edited each week twice each week by david collins i'm jeff lemon that's adam collins uh, we'll be back with the regular weekly show on might be out wednesday after the test match i think yeah and, uh, the, the test will finish tuesday so if we really get our act together and record it on tuesday night then yeah hopefully it'll be in your feeds on wednesday at some stage lovely uh we shall see you then in your ears we'll see you in your ears it'll be dark in there but we will see you you won't see us we'll be in your ears um, but we'll be able to see some parts of you i'm just gonna leave it there uh have a good weekend good night I had to go about it.